You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with certified financial planner and investment advisor, Matthew Frankel, to dive into real estate investment trust, also known as REITs. Matthew has written a ton of valuable articles on investing and personal finance for The Motley Fool. He has an amazing wealth of knowledge on investing. I've learned a ton from his articles and also from his industry-focused podcast with our previous guest, Jason Moser. So I was super excited to talk to him for this episode today. So without further delay, let's get into this episode with Matthew Frankel. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's show. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Matt Frankel from The Motley Fool. Welcome to the show, Matt. Hey, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm excited for our conversation today because even though I'm an active real estate investor and I also pick individual stocks, I haven't really spent much time studying or investing in REITs. So I'm excited to dive into it all and learn more about REIT investing. But before we dive into that conversation, tell the audience a bit about your background and what you're working on. Well, I'm a certified financial planner. I primarily work for a company called The Motley Fool. Check us out. You've probably heard of us before. We actually just started a new real estate brand called Million Acres at www.millionacres.com. And we are trying to do all things real estate, kind of do what The Motley Fool did for stocks, but in the real estate world. That includes real estate investment trusts, which I think we're going to talk a little bit more about, and things like buying an investment property, um, getting the best mortgage when you're buying a house, and this new concept of crowdfunded real estate that is really interesting. So we're trying to make real estate investing accessible and understandable to everybody. What was the big driver in your switch from teaching full-time to what you're doing today? It was kind of a natural translation. I love to teach. I love investing. So what I'm doing now kind of lets me combine the two, especially on things like the podcast that I do. I'm on the industry focused podcast. It was just a natural transition. And I had been kind of dabbling in investment writing on the side while I was still a teacher. I was a teacher when I lived in the Florida Keys, which is a very expensive area to live in. And everyone there has a second job and mine was investment writing. So I did that long enough that the Motley Fool offered me full time and been doing that ever since. It's a form of teaching, I consider it. You've written hundreds of articles for The Motley Fool since you've been doing it. Many of them were covering REITs, which are just real estate investment trusts. So for those listening who may not have heard of REITs before, what exactly is it? And how is a REIT different than just traditional real estate investing? Most of the REITs that you'll see are publicly traded. They trade on exchanges just like stocks. But they're a specialized type of company that's meant to own real estate assets. But you can't just own real estate assets and call yourself a REIT. You have to meet certain criteria. You have to invest at least three quarters of your assets in real estate, for example. You also, and this is the one that is most notable, you have to pay out at least 90% of your taxable income to shareholders. This is why REITs tend to be great dividend paying stocks. So there's a list of requirements they need to meet in order to meet REIT classification. And benefit of if they can qualify as a REIT is that they don't pay tax on the corporate level. Most dividend stocks, when a company earns profits, it's taxed on the corporate level with corporate tax. And then once they're paid out to investors as dividends, they're taxed again as dividend income. And effectively, the same income is being taxed twice. 
with REITs, the, there's no tax on the corporate level. So the only tax you have to worry about is on the individual level, which is a great tax benefit. If you've heard that real estate is one of the most tax advantaged investment classes in the world, that's one of the reasons why all different forms of real estate investment have their tax advantages and that and REITs are no exception. Yeah, that's interesting to hear about the tax advantages because a lot of times people go into physical real estate because of those tax advantages. So it's interesting to hear that you can get it investing in the stock market too, as long as it's in a REIT. And I'm a, a real estate investor too. I have a couple investment properties in, in my home area and it's great tax benefits. Uh, my properties made money this past year, but it showed a loss for tax purposes, which is pretty incredible. It's, it's the only kind of asset class I know that'll do that for you. Yeah. Same exact thing for me. So other than just the tax benefits, why should someone consider investing in REITs? What are some of the other pros and what might be some of the cons? Well, it's also a, a diversification move, if you will. If you're a stock investor, when the market goes down like the past few days, the Dow is down 2,000 points, pretty much everything's going down. It could be a nice little hedge because real estate doesn't move with the stock market necessarily. In fact, a lot of things that drive the stock market downward, like uncertainty, will actually lift REITs uh, when interest rates fall because of investor fears. That's actually a positive catalyst for real estate. You know, REITs, all dividend-based investments tend to move inversely to interest rates. So if you see, say, treasury yields fall, you'll see dividend stocks as a whole benefit. So it's a nice little diversification. It gets you away from just stocks and bonds in your investment portfolio. And the return potential is great for the the risk involved because of the tax advantages. It really amplifies the long-term reward potential. And over time, over long periods, like decades long periods of time, REITs have actually outperformed the stock market as a whole, which is pretty impressive considering the level of risk. In fact, in the 2008-2009 financial crisis, although that was a crash that was caused in effect by real estate, the real estate index actually outperformed the S&P 500 during that time, kind of shows you the relative safety of the asset class. Some people are arguing that we might be in another bubble in the real estate market. Would you argue that REITs are positioned to continue to outperform if that recession is driven by real estate again? Would they outperform? It depends. But I caution that we're not kind of, we're in a different, if we are in a bubble, we're in a different sort of bubble than last time. Last time it was caused by kind of predatory lending, just rampant speculation. Right now, the the rise, I don't want to call it a bubble because I don't really think it is one, but the rise in real estate prices that we've seen in the past few years has really been due to a shortage of available inventory. In other words, there aren't enough available homes for to satisfy the demand. In my local market, I've have trouble buying rental properties because all the good ones get snatched up in a day or two. I don't know if you're seeing the same thing up there, but it's a big supply and demand issue. And right now, the home builders are really not focusing too much on the lower end of the market, which is where you're seeing the most supply issues. And I don't think it's a bubble per se. I think where the recovery is about where it should be. If In most parts of the country, we're just above the, the pre-crisis peak in terms of real estate prices. So I wouldn't call it a bubble, but we're definitely getting up there. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you. It's hard to find any properties local to me that don't sell in a day or two being on the market. So it is difficult to find rental properties. That's why I invest mostly long distance for my rental properties. Like we talked about before the show, I live in the Boston area, but I invest most of my rental properties in Texas. So I'm able to be able to go out there and find the markets where there are better opportunities, kind of like you could do with the stock market. It's a similar concept just in the real estate world. But going back to REITs, how is analyzing a REIT different from analyzing other individual company stocks that someone listening to the show might be doing today? Well, I would say the biggest thing you need to learn when you start investing in REITs from an analytical point of view 
is that traditional measures of earnings don't really translate well to real estate. Um, as you know, as a rental property owner, you have this cool tax benefit known as depreciation, right? That allows you to deduct a certain percentage of your property's cost every year, lowers your taxable income. Well, REITs can do the same thing. So the problem with, with that is they're depreciating you know, hundreds or thousands of properties, and it makes their earnings look artificially low. So there's a metric called funds from operations, which is abbreviated FFO, which is the number one metric that any REIT investor, I think, should learn. It adds back in the depreciation costs and makes a couple more little real estate-specific tweaks. And it gives investors kind of the better picture of how much money these companies are actually making. One common, I call it a rookie mistake, is to look at a REIT's earnings you know, in a traditional sense, it's net income and say, oh, this is trading at, you know, 50 times earnings. This REIT's too expensive. And that's kind of the wrong way to look at it. You should look, be looking at, um, at FFO funds from operations as the, the earnings of the REIT world. That I think is the biggest analytical tip I can give you. Is net income after shareholder distributions or is that before net shareholder distributions? Net income, that's a good question. Net income is before shareholder distributions, and that's what the 90% requirement's based off of. So in reality, REITs don't actually distribute 90% of their profits. They distribute 90% of their taxable profits. And that's after depreciation is taken out and all that. So they're, they're not actually having to kick out 90% of their income. And net income, it is an artificially low number. It does not include dis- distributions, as you asked, but it doesn't give an accurate picture of how much a REIT is actually earning. So it's almost like EBITDA, but taking out depreciation essentially is where, where that number is. So what are other specific metrics that are most important when analyzing a REIT? And can you just look at a FFO multiple to determine if a company is undervalued or how might you want to go about that? Well, FFO multiples are really, just like price to earnings, are really best for comparing companies in the same you know, subsector. For example, comparing retail REITs with one another or office REITs with one another. Another metric that you should look at is debt to EBITDA. Debt levels are really crucial in real estate. Obviously, in real estate, unlike most other industries, borrowed money is more of a big part of the equation. I don't know about you, but I've never bought a rental property without a mortgage. So in the real estate world, leverage is much a, a much bigger part of the game. So you want to look at the, some certain debt metrics. The interest coverage ratio is another good one. Those are worthy of comparison. You'll see some REITs that trade at really low price to FFO ratios, but have very high debt levels, for example, that might not be sustainable. Also, just kind of study the industry dynamics. There's certain types of properties that are in decline. Retail is one I just mentioned. There were um, brick and mortar retail is really not doing well lately. So you're going to see some really low valuations there. But if you're a veteran stock investor, you're probably familiar with the concept of a value trap. Whereas you see something that looks too good to be true, it probably is. Same thing's true in real estate. So ask yourself, is there? can you identify the growth path for that type of property? I'll give you an example of a rapidly growing type of property. That's warehouse real estate. E-commerce like Amazon, things like that. They need tons of space for distribution, storing products, things like that. So you're seeing industrial REITs really take off. So that's, like, that's what I mean by kind of a, an identifiable path to growth. So start with that. Then look at your valuation metrics once you kind of real, figure out what kind of real estate you want to own. When you're looking at those debt metrics, is there a specific threshold or level that you're not comfortable with? Or does it really vary depending on the sector? You know, Retail, like you said, you're probably not going to allow them to have as much debt and still invest in them because of the issues that they're having. Whereas someone in the industrial space, maybe they could take on a little bit more debt. Is that kind of how you think about it? There's no set threshold. 
I like to see that to EBITDA lower than, say, five to one. That's usually the cutoff in my mind, but there's exceptions. And you also have to kind of take into account how much a company is paying for its debt because of the risk involved with certain types of retail, for example. Companies have to pay, you know, five, six percent for interest on their debt. Whereas, you know, an, an A rated industrial REIT might be paying three percent for the same type of debt. So it's not just the debt ratio. There's a few factors to take into account, but that is you want to see that a company is making enough money to cover its debts, even if its earnings went down a little bit, which is why I mentioned the interest coverage ratio. Using the two kind of in combination, debt to EBITDA and interest coverage kind of work hand in hand to kind of give you the full picture of how much debt a REIT has. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. So now before we dive into some of your favorite picks in the REIT space, I want to talk about the different areas of real estate. And you've already mentioned a couple of the industrial space or even the retail space, but the most common is probably retail, like you said. But in general, do you see opportunities in REITs that have exposure to retail or are you trying to avoid them altogether? Well, there's several different kinds of retail. There's everyone's town has a shopping mall that nobody goes to anymore. But um, there are some types of retail that are not really prone to e-commerce disruption. Think retail that you have to go to, say like like a drugstore or a gas station, for example. 
or entertainment-based retail that doesn't sell a product but sells an experience. So not all types of retail are created equal in that sense. And the really high-end malls are actually doing very well. There's a company called, we don't want to get into my picks yet, but there's one called Simon Property Group that is like, you know, the highest end malls there are. And their tenants are actually reporting higher sales this year than, than the year before. So that retail is definitely a case-by-case basis. There are, there are opportunities there, but it's not, I wouldn't just say dive into retail at this point. It's definitely a case-by-case scenario. So in general, what areas of real estate are you super excited about? And then what areas are you just avoiding at all costs? Which areas am I excited about? I'm, I tend to be opportunistic. So some of those areas of retail that I said, which have been kind of unfairly beaten down just because the general stigma associated with retail right now, there's some great opportunities in office real estate right now. If anyone really follows the stock market, you might've heard about the WeWork IPO drama. They tried to go public and almost went bankrupt and had to fire their CEO. But anyway, that kind of sent a ripple effect through the office real estate market where there's a lot of really kind of beaten down names in inner city office space that are good opportunities that I'm excited about. And I already mentioned industrial, um, the e-commerce wave. Right now, e-commerce makes up about 13% of all retail sales, not as much as most people think. So there's still a lot more room for that to expand. So there are a few really good areas of real estate exciting right now, in my opinion. So let's dive into two of your favorite picks in the REIT space right now that you actually own and then one that you don't currently own, but it's on your watch list and you're looking to buy it in the future. So what is your favorite REIT right now and why do you like that pick? I'd have to say my absolute favorite REIT right now is one called Tanger Outlets. And this might not be the one that you're thinking of. And I, I mentioned that I'm an opportunistic investor. And over the past few days, especially in this kind of the coronavirus, I call it the coronavirus collapse in the market over the past few days. It's really been beaten down. And it's one of those types of retail that really, I think, still has a bright future. And it's been kind of unfairly beaten down. It pays something like an 11% dividend just because the stock has been beaten down so hard. And outlet shopping isn't going anywhere. It's definitely an experiential type of shopping, that whole like treasure hunt aspect to going to the outlets. And it's a very well-run company. It's still run by its founder. They've raised their dividend every year for 27 years they've been in business now. So that's one that is definitely on the top of my list right now. If you had a specific one in mind that you might've thought I I was going to say, I'm all ears. No, I, I didn't have anything in mind that you would specifically say, but I am a bit surprised to say or hear that the Tanger Outlets is, is or Tanger Outlets is one of your favorites because I have a couple of those near where I live and I wouldn't think of them. When I go there, I don't think of them as necessarily being the greatest REIT investments, not because they don't do anything good or they do things poorly. It's just not one of those things that you would think of. And again, I'm not a, a REIT investor by any means, but I'm, I'm surprised to hear that that's your number one REIT pick. It's one of the few REITs that really has a brand name. When you think of a lot of the, the REITs that you've probably read my articles about, they're not like household names. Hanger's more of a brand name than you would think of a real estate company. So yeah, it's it might surprise you to think that, but it's definitely one of the retail plays that I think is kind of been misjudged by the market. So how about your second favorite REIT that you currently own? <laughs> that I currently own, American Campus Communities. If you aren't familiar with that company, they are a student housing REIT. They're the only student housing REIT in the market right now. There were a couple, but the other one got acquired. Student housing is a massive opportunity. I don't know when you went to college if you lived in the dorms, but most dorms in public universities in America, they're not where people want to live anymore. So there's a massive opportunity for off-campus housing developments that are specifically geared towards students. 
And this is kind of a new phenomenon in the past, say, 15 years or so. American Campus was actually the pioneer of this industry. The, another company where the founder still runs it, if you kind of see a trend developing there. I love uh, companies where the, the founder is still engaged and whether, whether we're talking about REITs or regular stocks or anything. That's one that I really think has a big, bright future. And college housing is, is a market that's really not going anywhere. and They have a dominant market share right now. So when they own properties, are they partnering with the colleges or are they operating completely independently and just buying, just say, a multifamily apartment building across the street from a college and then renting that out to college students? Well, both. They actually have three separate businesses, um, I guess you would say. They have an off-campus business where they're just kind of building a property off-campus that's geared towards students, but not affiliated with the college. There's on-campus housing where the university will actually contract them to build a property that they'll manage and the university still owns and they'll manage. And then there's kind of just like third-party management of other properties. For example, if you've heard of the Disney summer program where the, the summer internships offered by Disney World are some of the biggest in the country, they just built the student housing for them under contract with Disney. So they're kind of thinking outside the box with some opportunities like that. It's just a really interesting all-around business. And I think it's still in its early stages. Colleges are figuring out they don't really want to be landlords anymore. <laughs> and I don't think that we've seen the last of that. Yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting dynamic that I think the company could probably fill is there's a lot of people that travel for different internship programs and need housing. So that's a way to take advantage of student housing, but not necessarily be a part of the colleges or in a college town. They focus on primarily like state universities with huge populations that and really old dorms. I know when I was a freshman at the University of South Carolina, the dorms were actually the same building other lived in when he was in college. There's a big opportunity to kind of modernize the student housing experience. They're still in the early stages in a lot of their key markets. And I'm really excited to see where that goes over the next 10, 15, 20 years. So how are these two companies coming onto your radar? How did you even find them in the first place? I love businesses that are kind of leaders in their field. There are only two real outlet brand names, I guess you'd say. And one is owned by Simon Property, that massive mall real estate company I mentioned. I love big brand names. I love leaders in their field. I love businesses led by their founder. I already mentioned that, that have a great track record of raising their dividend. That's a great thing to look for in a REIT or any other stock for that matter. Both of those do that. Both of those have maintained great occupancy rates over time. They've kind of the management has exhibited very shareholder-friendly behavior when it comes to you know recycling assets, putting shareholders' needs first. Both founders have a lot of skin in the game themselves. So as investors benefit, they stand to benefit a lot. But the, the, the real answer is that there are about 200 REITs on my radar that I call my investable universe in terms of like size and scope and things like that. I have my favorites out of those and I kind of whittled down a list. Right now, I think there's about 20 to 25 names on it. Those are two of the best values on that list that I have. A lot of those things that you just mentioned, you can't necessarily find in a stock screener, but are you starting with a stock screener to kind of narrow it down to certain companies based on certain metrics and then you'll dive in and look at those specific qualitative things that you're looking for? Yeah, I'd say I'd start with a stock screener. I tend to focus on mid-sized companies. It's definitely something I screen for. Like I, Most of the REITs I own are not massive mega cap companies. They're the middle, middle of the pack, I guess you'd say. I like a lot of room for growth opportunities. And with a company like Simon that I mentioned, which is, I think, it's the biggest non-telecommunications REIT in the world. Market cap, something around $50 billion. They don't have a ton of room to grow that as 
some of the other companies I mentioned. So I start with a stock screener, but I, I read a lot of company annual reports. I read, um, you can find the most important parts of an annual report in probably like a five page section in the front. So you don't have to read the whole you know, 100 page document. Read earnings reports. There's an interview with a CEO or founder. Read that. I read a lot. That's kind of the biggest thing people are surprised that I spend about half my day reading. You're right. A lot of my investing strategy is more qualitative things that don't show up in stock screeners. And a lot of the Motley Fools, a lot of my colleagues are have a similar approach. And I think that's one of the big things that really differentiates us. Well, I think you're in good company with all of the reading. I think Buffett and Munger and some other very successful investors said they spend upwards of what, 90% of their day reading. So I think... I don't read quite as much as Buffett does. Yeah. I think I, I heard <laughs> once that he reads almost 500 pages a day or... or yeah, he says something like 12-hour workday, and he spends maybe one hour of it doing something other than reading. Yeah, yeah, that's mind-boggling to me. But So you're definitely in good company there. And I think your point about the subjective or qualitative features of a company is a, is a great one because that's where you can find a lot of undervalued picks, right? When I first started investing and I was a value investor, I thought I could find undervalued stocks based solely on fundamentals or just solely based on quantitative data. I thought that if I found a company with certain X, Y, and Z metrics, then it was undervalued and that was going to be a good pick. What I quickly realized was that that was not the case and that there was a lot of qualitative things that went into stock picks and that could make them undervalued. And so I think that point that you made was is very, very good one. It's important to emphasize that the numbers have to work. You should start with the numbers first. Like you said, either a stock screener or just kind of crunch some numbers, see which companies look undervalued, see what has a good track record of dividend increases, which you, you could also find in a stock screener. But then you know, if you narrow it down to five or six companies and want to pick the best one or want to verify that it's actually a good deal and not a trap, that's where you kind of need to, you know, like I said, read annual reports, listen to conference calls. It's a good thing to do. Earnings reports and articles like mine, I guess. <laughs> if you want the Cliff's Notes version, I like to be able to break an annual report down into a 600 word article because not everybody likes reading company reports as much as I do. And I we understand that that's weird on my behalf. Well, I think, uh, I think we have that weird characteristic in common because back in college, I, for whatever reason, I was a finance major, but for whatever reason, I had to take biology, chemistry, all these science courses. And I remember my freshman year of biology, I spent almost all of the printing dollars that they would give you to print throughout the school year. I spent all of them on annual reports. I'd print them all out because I like reading that better than the electronic version. And then my biology teacher, and the reason I had to spend so much on it was because my biology teacher would continue to throw them away because I wouldn't pay attention in class because I was reading the annual reports. So I think you and I definitely have that weird characteristic in, in common. It served me well over the years. So far, knock on wood, it served me well as well. <laughs> now let's talk about your watch list pick. What's a REIT that you like right now, but you don't own it yet and you plan to in the future? I could tell you a few that I love other than valuation. Those are my kind of watch list stocks. I have a list of companies that I would love to own, but they're just not cheap enough yet, I guess I would say. When I mentioned uh, the industrial REITs with the, the warehouses, things like that, uh, Prologis is one of the few industry leaders that I really love. Ticker symbol is PLD on that one, Furious. But that's one that's high on my watch list right now, but it's just had a phenomenal run and it just looks a little too overdone to me for the moment from a valuation standpoint right now. I mentioned a telecommunications REITs also. There's a lot of REITs that just kind of own, if you see the cell phone towers scattered around your neighborhood, a lot of REITs own that infrastructure. And with the, the 5G rollout happening over the next couple of years, there's a lot of opportunity there. American Tower is the big one in the space. There's a few others, but that's 
in my opinion, the one worth owning. But it's like I said, it's had a phenomenal run over the past few years and just a little too overheated in my book. So those those are two names. Yes, for one, but I gave you two. Prologis and American Tower are two that are on my watch list, but are just a little too expensive for me to pull the trigger on right now. And so when you say they're too expensive, for someone that's new to the real estate space or the REIT space, I know you mentioned FFO, but what type of analysis quantitatively are you doing to determine that those stocks or those REITs are overvalued? Not overvalued, but not to a point where you're willing to invest in them yet. It's not just the current FFO valuation. It's kind of, have they gone too far too fast? I don't, don't quote me on the exact numbers, but let's say a company goes from a price to FFO of 15 to a price to FFO of say 35 in a year, which is something like what American Tower has done. That is kind of, let's wait for a pullback. Let's see where it goes from here. I'm in the minority at the Motley Fool on that kind of thinking. Admittedly, I've missed out on some great investments doing that. I was the guy who got Amazon expensive at $200 a share. So I'm not always right, but I tend to be more of a value seeker, more so than most of my colleagues looking for kind of the bargains in a sector. And those, I don't think anyone can make the case that those are bargains right now. They might turn out to be fairly valued, but it's more of just kind of looking like they're getting overheated than just price to FFO multiple because they are trading in line with the rest of the companies in their sector. There is a lot of growth catalyst in the years ahead, but I don't know if a price to FFO over 30 or 35 is really justified. Yeah, I fall in that same camp. I tend to, to invest a lot on valuation. And I've noticed a lot of people at The Motley Fool don't necessarily put a ton of weight on the valuation as much as someone like myself and it sounds like you. And I've missed out on some picks. I, I was invested in Teladoc and I sold earlier this summer and around the 60s, early 70s range. And today it's over 120 and it's going up to 130 tomorrow. Pre-market, it's up big. So definitely valuation can cause you to miss out on some some good picks that otherwise would work out. <laughs> so what's a common piece of investing advice that you often hear given that you think is misleading or maybe just not true? And how would you make that good advice? I guess the thing that I see newer investors do too often is selling too early. As in, now let me share you one of the stories of, that I learned when I was a newer investor. People ask me what my best investment was of all time. And they ask me what my worst investment was of all time. And I tell them it was the same one. I got into the Tesla IPO at $23 a share. If anyone's been following it, Tesla recently was in the $800 to $900 a share range. So I got into the Tesla IPO. I want to say it was 2013 around. Don't quote me on the year, but a little bit later, a little while after I got in, Model S was named Motor Trends Car of the Year. And the stock jumped from $23 to about $65 to $70 a share. And I sold. I tripled my money and I sold. And I thought I made the best move of all time. For the money I had left on, I've left on the table by getting out of Tesla too early. I could have literally bought a Tesla Model S. So the lesson I learned is if your reasons for buying still apply and the stock's gone up, that's not a good reason to sell. The piece of investment advice that I hear all the time by the experts on TV is that there's nothing wrong with taking profits. And I think that's terrible investment advice. I say there are good reasons to sell, but just because the stock went up is not one of them. And you mentioned uh, Teladoc, and that's kind of the same situation there. Why do you think so many people fall victim to that? Well, because it's tempting to take profits. A lot of people are in the mindset of when things are going up, let's lock in some gains before they go away. And when, on the other hand, when stocks are going down, people are in the mindset, well, let's, let's sell and get out before things get any worse. We all know that the, the goal of investing is to buy low and sell high, but our instincts tell us to do the exact opposite. They tell us to, okay, you made a little bit of money, get out, be safe. 
the goal should be to own great businesses for the long term. Goal shouldn't be just to make a quick profit. But as capitalists, that's what we're wired to do. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that specific thing because I tend to struggle with that myself as an investor. I have a pretty big position in MasterCard. It is my biggest position. And I've also done very well in it. And it's up a lot. And I argue with myself every day as to whether or not I should start trimming that position. And I come back to that same analysis that you just said. My only reason is because it's up so much, not because the business has changed, not because my thesis has changed or anything fundamental about the business has changed. It's just solely based on, on the price. Yeah, it's that's the wrong way to think about stocks and just thinking in terms of price is kind of the one thing I would really encourage newer investors to try to rid themselves of that mentality. If your reasons and I, I repeated this, but it's worth repeating. If your original reasons for buying a stock still apply, there's no reason to sell. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. How do new investors overcome that mental hurdle? I think psychology is probably one of the hardest parts of investing. In theory, we want to buy low and sell high, but psychology tells us to buy high and sell low. 
So how can a new investor overcome this dynamic? Learn from mistakes of guys like you and me. My situation isn't going to be the first Tesla. Yours isn't going to be the first, the only Teladoc. There are going to be other companies that are in the same boat where they, you know, jump up a lot really fast, but are still good businesses. And just to kind of show you how I've applied that lesson, my biggest position right now is a company called Square, which you're probably familiar with. I bought Square at $9 a share. And when it jumped up to about $30 a share, I was really tempted to hit the sell button and get out. I mean, I tripled my money, but I said, this is still a great company. There's still a lot of room to grow, great management, everything's, it's given me the green light. So I held on and now it's in the pre-market, it's $85 right now because they just reported their earnings and it's, it's grown into my largest stock position. So I'd say your winners are winners for a reason. They're winners because they're good businesses. And it's, it's really tough to get yourself into that mentality. And everybody has one that they sold too early. Every experienced investor really has done that at least once. There's no way to avoid it, avoid it entirely, but the goal should be to kind of minimize the amount of times you do that. Yeah, Square, I'm actually very familiar with it myself. It's my second largest position after MasterCard. So I'm in the similar position to you. I don't have a cost basis of $9. I wish I did, but it's lower than what it is today. And I, I kind of battle myself on the same thing there. And similar with other positions like Visa and some of my other larger holdings. But yeah, it's, it's one of those psychological things that I think is so hard for new investors. On top of everything else, it's, that's hard about investing. So as we wrap up the show, if you were to summarize everything you've learned over the years, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give to a millennial investor listening to the show today? Time is on your side. Believe it or not, I'm a millennial. I'm, an older, I'm, I'm a millennial by like three months, most people's definitions. You know, Use time to your advantage. Don't trade in and out of stocks. Buy for the long term. The long term mentality is really the biggest psychological hurdle that new investors need to need to overcome. You see a lot of the stocks that are really popular with millennials right now. Uh, Beyond Meat's one of the big examples I, I give right now. That's going up thirty percent one day, down twenty percent the next day because people are trading in and out of it like it's a like they're at the casino and without knowing anything about the business. All they see is it's going up or it's going down, and they want to catch it when it's down so that it'll go up without knowing anything about the underlying business. Think in terms of you're buying businesses that you would want to own. If you had the money, would you buy all of Teladoc? If you had all all the, if you had enough money, would you buy would you buy all of Square? Would that be a business you would want to own yourself? Think of investing in terms of that and your mentality will change quite a bit. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I like to think of things that way myself as well. And maybe someday you'll have enough money if you continue to do it that way that you can buy the whole company. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Matt, thanks so much for your time. Where can the audience go to learn more about you and read your work? Millionacres.com is the new real estate side of The Motley Fool, millionacres.com. I'm on our industry-focused podcast every Monday. In fact, uh, if you go to fool.com, you can search for my, my bio and learn more about me then, including a list of all the stocks I own if you're, if you're interested. Awesome. I'll be sure to put a link to all those different resources in the show notes so everybody listening today can go check it out. Matt, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.